0: The old pilot's plain tales, burning the Forrestal. When placed in commission on the 1st of October 1955, USS Forrestal was the first of the supercarriers and the largest warship ever constructed. She displaced almost 80,000 tons and was over 1,000 feet long. When her air wing embarked, she had a complement of over 5,000 sailors and marines, and her main battery consisted of between 80 and 100 aircraft of various types. She was a formidable weapon of war. It is July 1967, and USS Forrestal is in the Gulf of Tonkin conducting combat operations. The Vietnam War is in full swing and the US Navy is engaged in the most intense and sustained air attack operations in its history. On board Forrestal, the Weapons Coordination Board were meeting to discuss ways to ensure that nothing should stop the smooth flow of aircraft from launching during this intense period of flying. The Ordnance and Weapons Officers were considering the ramifications of a check that had to be done to the Zuni rocket launchers before the aircraft took off. The Zuni was a powerful, unguided rocket that was housed on a triple ejector rack on the F-4 Phantom and was very effective as an air-to-ground weapon. To keep the weapons safe on the deck, an electrical safety pin on the rack prevented any electrical signals from reaching the rockets. However, it was well known that the tags attached to the pin could be easily blown free prematurely. As a backup, therefore, the power lead to the launcher wasn't connected until the fighter was in place on the catapult and ready to go. Before being connected, the power lead would be tested for stray voltages, and should it fail that test, then the aircraft would need to be dismounted from the catapult, causing awkward delays. There had to be a way around the problem. The solution that was proposed was undoubtedly made with the best of intentions and with the pressure of combat operations weighing on them. The decision was that the phase in the regulations just before takeoff would be interpreted as ready to taxi to the catapult so that the connection could now be made with the aircraft still queued. Hastily written draft minutes were promulgated as a memo and the new procedure implemented immediately. Permission wasn't sought from higher authority. It didn't even get as far as the captain. The holes in the Swiss cheese were starting to line up when four weeks later the Forrestal took on a new supply of bombs from the ammunition ship Diamond Head. The Navy had been dropping bombs at an enormous rate and the demand for the standard £1,000 iron bombs, particularly the new Mark 83, had greatly exceeded production. The Forrestal's commanding officer was offered 16 AN M65A1 Fatboy bombs, named so after their rotund shape, which he didn't want, but since the alternative was to cancel the next day's operations, he reluctantly agreed. His concerns were well-founded. Whereas the new Mark 83 weapons were relatively resistant to heat, shock and electricity and were designed to deflagrate instead of detonate in a fire, the Fat Boys came from a different era. Some of those old bombs were more than a decade old and had spent years being improperly stored in the open air exposed to the heat and humidity of Guam. The thin-skinned weapons were filled with Composition B, an older explosive that was sensitive to both heat and shock, and could increase significantly in explosive power if badly stored or old. Forestall's ordnance handlers were shocked as they unpacked the bombs. They were in terrible condition, with decades of accumulated rust and grime, and still in their original packing crates, now mouldy and rotting, stamped 1953. Most dangerous of all, some were leaking from their seams, an unmistakable sign that the explosive had degenerated. Many concerns were voiced, and one officer wondered aloud if they would even survive the shock of a catapult launch. The captain was hamstrung, but he agreed to store the fat boys alone on the deck instead of in the ship's magazine. Another layer of cheese was in place. It was the morning of July the 27th, and the ship was preparing for the second strike of the day. The aircraft were lined up on the crowded fantail, pointing inwards, the F-4s on the starboard side and the A-4s on the port. They were fueled and loaded, and weapons checks were being completed. Lieutenant Commander John McCain III, later to become Senator John McCain, was strapped in to his fully armed A-4. Opposite him, a mighty Phantom was starting its J79 engines. Beneath the wings of the Phantom, the weapon's personnel were, in accordance with the new procedures, connecting the firing leads to the Zuni launchers. As the engines came up to idle power, the pilot flicked the generators on to transfer the fighter to internal power. The generators came on under load, and, as was common, the power momentarily spiked. The surge in electricity was soon to settle, but not before a few stray volts found their way into the weapon circuits. The final layer of cheese lined up. McCain heard a low whoosh, and then a low order explosion from somewhere in front. His A-4 shuddered, and within seconds his aircraft was engulfed in a wall of flame as burning jet fuel gushed from a split underwing tank. The Zunis' warhead didn't have time to arm, but the impact tore the wing tank off. In rapid succession, other tanks overheated and ruptured, each burst tank releasing 400 more gallons of JP-5 into the conflagration. Then a bomb dropped onto the deck and rolled about six feet into a pool of burning fuel. The fat boy bomb casing had split and it was burning with a white-hot ferocity. The carrier's highly trained fire crew responded immediately. Fifty-four seconds after the fire started, Chief Gerald Ferrier, the head of Damage Control Team 8, tackled the burning bomb with a PKP hand extinguisher and without protective clothing in an effort to knock the fire down to allow the pilots to escape. Twenty seconds later, his hose crew arrived and began to beat the flames back. The team had been taught that they had a ten-minute window to extinguish a fire and prevent a bomb from detonating, but that didn't take into account the old and deteriorating Fatboy bombs. Despite Chief Farrier's efforts, he could see the split casing growing cherry red, and he recognised that a lethal cook-off was imminent. He shouted for his team to withdraw, but the bomb exploded, and less than ten seconds later, a second thousand-pounder exploded with even more ferocity, hurling debris nearly a thousand feet away. Ninety-six seconds had elapsed, but he and all but three of Team 8 were dead. Those left alive were critically injured. Lieutenant Dave Clement, the rescue helicopter pilot, flying flight guard duty nearby, described it. There was a horrendous explosion that shook Angel to zero. It seemed as if the whole stern of the forestal had erupted. Suddenly there were rafts, fuel tanks, oxygen tanks, drop tanks and debris of every description floating in the water below. McCain had been one of the first to recognise the ferocity of the fire, and he escaped the flames by scrambling down the nose of his aircraft and swinging off the refuelling probe shortly before the explosions began. Other pilots, still strapped into their aircraft, were immediately aware of the disaster unfolding, but only some were able to escape in time. The detonation destroyed the two A-4s that had been initially damaged, along with their ordnance and remaining fuel. Lieutenant Commander White, who had been in one of the A-4s hit by the Zuni, escaped from his aircraft, but he couldn't get far enough away to escape the bomb blast and was killed. Lieutenant Commander Herbert was far enough away to survive the first explosion. He escaped the cockpit of his Skyhawk by rolling off the flight deck onto the man overboard netting. Making his way down to the hangar deck, he took command of a firefighting team. The port quarter of the flight deck where I was, he recalled, was no longer there. Two other pilots weren't so lucky, and both were killed by explosions during this period while the rest were able to escape their aircraft and get below. The explosions, several of which were estimated as up to 50% more powerful than a standard £1,000 bomb due to the badly deteriorated Composition B, tore large holes in the flight deck, causing burning jet fuel to drain into the interior of the ship, including the living quarters, directly underneath the flight deck and the below-deck's aircraft hangar. Flaming fuel, water and foam cascaded down into the compartments. Battling the fires below deck was more difficult than topside with the confined spaces, little light, thick black smoke and toxic fumes. Although the fire on the flight deck was controlled within an hour, fires below raged until next morning. Lieutenant Clement and his crew rescued Forrestal crewmen who jumped, fell or were knocked from the carrier no less than five times with an hour. Later they would be shuttling medical supplies to the stricken ship. The continuing explosions on Forrestal's flight deck would rock their helicopter, leaving the ship's aft end, in Lieutenant Clement's words, a mass of twisted steel with holes in the flight deck, a vacant space where there had been many aircraft, and a towering column of black and grey smoke and flames. Nine bomb explosions eventually occurred on the flight deck, eight caused by the ANM-65 Composition B bombs cooking off under the heat of the fuel fires. The more modern Composition H-6 based bombs performed as designed and either burned on the deck or were jettisoned, but they did not detonate under the heat of the fires. Repeatedly, detonating ordnance cleared the deck of firefighting teams who were left dead or badly injured, Almost immediately, others would run forward to grab the flailing hoses, and even having just witnessed the deaths of their crewmates, would take up their duties. Sadly, the specialist teams were amongst the first to be decimated, and without the same training, others lessened the effectiveness of the foam carpets being laid down by washing the decks clear with seawater and carrying flaming fuel down into the decks below, through the bomb craters, where men died in their sleep or trapped in the tight maze of compartments surrounded by the inferno cascading down from above. Although the fires on the deck were extinguished within a few hours, below decks they continued to rage for over a day. There were stories told of the brave men of Forrestal for years after. Robert Cates, the carrier's explosive ordnance demolition officer, calmly recounted later how he had noticed that there was a 500-pound bomb and a 750-pound bomb in the middle of the flight deck, still smoking. They hadn't detonated or anything. They were just sitting there, smoking. So I went up and defused them and had them jettisoned. He also told how one of his men, Black, volunteered to be lowered by line through a hole in the flight deck to defuse a live bomb that had dropped to the 0-3 level, even though the compartment was still on fire and full of smoke. Black did the job, and later Cates had himself lowered into the compartment to attach a line to the bomb so that it could be jettisoned. Two forestall flight deck crewmen were knocked overboard by one of the explosions. They fell 70 feet into the water, were picked up by a rescue helicopter and deposited back onto the flight deck to resume firefighting at once. Ensign Schmidt and his damage control team fought their way into burning compartments. There were times he had to enter spaces that were virtually inaccessible. I asked for volunteers, he recalled, and immediately I had two or three who followed me back into the guts of the fire, Several times people would come up to me and say, What can I do? How can I help? At first he couldn't find work for all the people who wanted to help. I can't give enough praise to the sailors I supervised. They fought the fire and did all the dirty jobs. Those kids worked all night, 28 hours, containing the fire. I have nothing but praise for the American sailor. Sadly, time prevents me from recalling all the stories of individual heroism that day, as there were many, like the captains of the destroyers, USS Rupertus and George Mackenzie, who manoeuvred their ships and held station for hours within 20 feet of the carrier so that their own fire hoses could be effectively used, a feat which Rear Admiral Lanham called an act of magnificent seamanship and the skinny Filipino stewards who weighed less than a 100 pounds and rolled and dragged 250-pound bombs to the edges of the decks and pushed them over. Men died. Men willingly gave their lives for their comrades and their ship. I feel it would be an insult to the memory of the 134 men killed and the 161 who were severely injured to pick over the findings of the inquiry. But suffice to say, procedures and training changed and equipment was improved. It cost over $72 million to repair the forestal, not including the cost of the equipment lost, but the largest cost by far was in the lives of the sailors on board. As the carrier steamed for Subic Bay, a memorial service was held for the crewmen who had given their lives to their ship and their country. More than two thousand Forestal men listened and prayed with the chaplains as they paid tribute to their lost shipmates. Three volleys were fired by thirteen U.S. Marines. After shipyard repairs, USS Forrestal continued to serve, making many more deployments with the 2nd and the 6th fleets. But she never again deployed to Vietnam.